Please stand for the scripture reading. Today is be in Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 33. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to, the, to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what the sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, there shall, and of his kingdom, there shall will be no end. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It's a joy to be with you as we continue to approach uh, Christmas Day coming next week already, and it's just always a joy and a wonderful time of year as we reflect on just the the good news of. God the Son taking on flesh and walking among us. And so as we are just one week away from celebrating the birth of Christ, we're going to be reflecting this morning on the wonder of the incarnation by considering how it was foretold long before it took place. God the Son taking on flesh did not come as a plan B after man's failure to uphold the religious system that they were entrusted with. Even a cursory reading of your Old Testament reveals that redemptive history was always steadily marching onwards towards the appearance of God's Messiah, who would eventually bring salvation to God's people. This took place precisely when God intended for it to. In Galatians, we read that when the fullness of time had come... God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so what we see here in the first chapter of Luke's gospel is the revelation that this long-awaited moment, the fullness of time, had come, and that he who made man would become man. In just a matter of months, the Messiah was soon to arrive. Now, with anticipation built up over the centuries for Emmanuel to come and ransom captive Israel, we see his entrance would not be as many supposed as a, as a conquering king, but instead, an angelic messenger is sent from God to an obscure young woman, in an obscure town in Galilee. Now, as we study this familiar passage together this morning, we'll first consider the messenger. Secondly, we'll take a look at Mary and her response to these things. And then finally, we'll look at how Gabriel describes the coming Messiah. We'll look at the messenger, Mary, and the Messiah. Let's look first at this heavenly messenger. Let's look at verse 26 of Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee 
named Nazareth. Now, when the text says that this took place in the sixth month, it's not referring to uh, the calendar year. Rather, it is referring back to the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the circumstances of which were revealed in the passage just prior to our own. Elizabeth, you'll remember, is Mary's cousin and is soon to be the mother of John the Baptist. And this conception was also miraculous in nature because, as the text says, Elizabeth was barren. And both, that is both her and her husband, were advanced in years. Well, in addition to the miraculous nature of Elizabeth conceiving a child, though clearly not to the same degree as a virgin birth, Elizabeth and Mary's circumstances share something else in common, and that is a visit from the angel Gabriel. Gabriel appeared to Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, as he performed his priestly work in the temple. And here in verse 26, we see that Gabriel is once again dispatched by God to announce the coming birth of a child. He was sent from God to a city named Nazareth. And now there is nothing particularly special about this town other than the fact that it is where the person he was sent to talk with was located. Nazareth is not a town of any significance. It wasn't along any major trade routes. The population at this time would have been at about 400 people. Yet Gabriel is sent to this obscure town for a glorious purpose, and that is to herald the coming of the Messiah. Now, apart from his appearance to Zechariah and here to Mary, the only other time in all of Scripture, where Gabriel is identified by name, he was also bringing good news of the coming of the Messiah. Way back in the Old Testament, in Daniel chapter 9, we find Daniel the prophet in sackcloth and ashes. He's repenting on behalf of, and he's praying for his people Israel. He's seeking mercy from God for the rebellion against his commands. And in verse 4 to 16 of Daniel 9, we see the prophet pour out his heart before God. And he's pleading for deliverance from this sin that God would turn away his just wrath away from Israel. And to comfort this disheartened prophet, the angel Gabriel appears and he says, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Now Gabriel proceeds to give him this vision, and he speaks to Daniel of a period of 70 weeks and, and 62 weeks and 7 weeks. And, and most commentators understand this passage as being weeks of years, that is uh, 70 and, and 62 and 7 periods of 7 years. And theologians and commentators agree less about the math involved in this. And they argue about things like the timing of what Gabriel mentions here. And it is very interesting to see how these can uh, perhaps add up and bring you to the time of Christ. But the key takeaway is this. Gabriel comes to comfort Daniel in his distress with a revelation that an anointed one, 
an anointed one is the word that he uses, will come who will, as he says, put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness. Daniel is literally in sackcloth and ashes. He is, he is weeping. He is praying. He is pleading. He is disheartened about the state of Israel. And God sends a heavenly messenger, that is Gabriel, to tell him that an anointed one will come, will put an end to sin, will atone for iniquity and bring in everlasting righteousness. Now, remember, the word Messiah literally just means anointed one. So we see this as a messianic prophecy right out of the gate. And moreover, Gabriel speaks of this coming Messiah atoning for the iniquity of the people and ultimately being cut off after a certain period, which speaks of his untimely death. Gabriel tells Daniel that a Messiah will come who will take away the many sins of God's people and usher in a messianic kingdom. He'll put an end to sin. His death will atone for our guilt before God, and in him we will find everlasting righteousness. And all of this is revealed some 500 years before Gabriel is sent yet again to herald the coming king, this time to an obscure small town to speak to an obscure young woman. And while there are other revelations in Scripture about the who, the what, the where, and the when of the coming Messiah, it is interesting to note that Gabriel has been involved in bringing such news multiple times. The news that God would send a Messiah. The news that he would uh, enact his long-awaited plan to deal with sin once and for all and to redeem his people from their sins. Well, having sent this messenger and having considered Gabriel, let's turn our attention to the young woman who will receive this message, and that is Mary. Look again at your text here in Luke chapter 1, this time verses 27 to 30. I'll go ahead and read uh, 26 so we don't start in mid-sentence here. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Before we're even told her name, we're told that, the Gabriel was, that Gabriel was sent to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Now, it is true that in both Greek and in Hebrew, the word that we translate as virgin can refer simply to a young woman. However, it is essential to a right understanding of the doctrine of the incarnation for us to recognize that this refers not to a young woman in general, but to a young woman who has not known a man in the biblical sense. Mary makes this clear. Having been told that she is going to bear a child, her immediate response was, how will this be since I am a virgin? Or literally it says, since I know no man. While a betrothal at this time and place meant 
far more than what an engagement means in our own culture, this was still not yet a full marriage. There was a covenant made. There was a dowry that would have already been exchanged, but the wedding feast had not taken place and the marriage not yet consummated. Mary was a virgin. She, uh, her becoming pregnant was, in any natural context, utterly impossible. And that is the point. As Gabriel would go on to remind her later in the chapter, nothing will be impossible with God. Some skeptics look and they point back and they, they say, well, we're too, uh, we're too wise and we know too much science to believe such things like this could happen. They were not stupid. They also understood things like this could not happen. That's the point. That's why it was a miracle. Christ's conception was supernatural, possible only by God's power. And any attempt to remove the miraculous nature of Christ's conception in order to appease a skeptical world does violence to the biblical text. And it robs God of the glory to his name. The virgin birth is an essential doctrine of the faith. By the virgin birth, the truth of the prophecy concerning the Messiah is made known. By the virgin birth, the dual nature of Jesus as truly man and truly God is made manifest. By the virgin birth, Christ in his humanity remains unpolluted by the sin of Adam, which is inherited by all mankind. That is made possible in part by the virgin birth. As we read, not only was Mary a virgin, she was betrothed to Joseph, who was of the house of of David. That is, he was a descendant of King David. And this lineage for Joseph is important. But as Joseph would be the adoptive and not the biological father of Jesus, it's important to note that Mary too could trace her line back to David. That Jesus would be of the house and the lineage of David. This is a key element to his rightful claim to be the Messiah as this is what was told throughout the ages. And we're going to look more on Jesus as the son of David further on in the passage. But for now, it is enough to recognize that Gabriel has certainly come to the right place and he is certainly standing before the right person. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. This is actually a, a fairly common way of, of speaking and talking to someone. This is how people may have greeted one another in the market. This is uh, perhaps a little bit flowery language for us in our day, but this was not that uncommon of a greeting in this day and age. So it's rather almost uh, an anticlimactic greeting for this angelic messenger to appear and basically say, Hi. And so we see this come, and Mary has to respond to this. But before we move on, let's camp here for just a bit. Greetings, O favored one. In the Latin translation of Scripture, the Latin Vulgate, Gabriel greets Mary with gratia plena, which translates in English to hail full of grace. 
which if you are at all familiar with Roman Catholicism, you'll recognize by their oft-repeated prayers of Hail Mary, full of grace. And because of our familiarity with that, it's worthwhile to note that this is not what Gabriel is saying here. Full of grace is not a literal translation of the Greek. Rather, Gabriel addresses Mary as one who has been graced. Or as we have in the ESV, one who has been favored. Mary is a recipient of God's grace and not a dispenser of God's grace. She was not so full of her own grace and so in some way merited this special assignment from God. We see her prayer in later verses. She acknowledges that her spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, and that she is herself God's servant of a humble estate. Mary needed grace as much as we do. This mistranslation of this verse goes on to compile into, into other doctrines that we as Protestants would strongly disagree with, where it speaks of her, uh, her, her perfection. And in fact, um, the Immaculate Conception, as you, you may or may not know, does not in fact deal with Jesus' conception, but Mary's. Mary was conceived without sin and lived without sin, and though therefore she was able to be an appropriate vessel for the birth of Christ. But Mary was just an ordinary young woman, chosen by God for an extraordinary purpose. And it is by His grace that this was so, and, and she was the recipient of God's grace in this blessing. That's all important for us to rightly understand but unfortunately, the, the Protestant tendency is to avoid the errors and the excesses of Rome in regards to Mary so much that we do not appreciate her as an example of humble faithfulness to God. We should not allow the false doctrines of later generations to besmirch the character of Mary, who I am confident would not desire what rightly belongs to Christ to be attributed to her. So do look to Mary and her remarkable response in this and later passages. In our own passage, we see that, that she was greatly troubled at the saying and trying to discern what sort of greeting this may be. She was perplexed. She was agitated by this rather odd thing to say from a stranger. Yet in the verses that follow, we see her respond to this tremendous and unimaginable news with a spirit of trust and of submission. She doesn't express doubt so much as she expresses confusion. After asking how these things could be, given the fact that she was a virgin, the angel replies, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. She asks how this will be, and this is the explanation that she receives. And, and perhaps she might have been wanting more than that. Yet despite receiving news, which must have been nearly impossible to fully comprehend and take in, and despite an explanation that was less than crystal clear, Mary responded to all of this by saying, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me 
according to your word. This is a sight better than Zechariah's response, where he asked Gabriel how he could know that such a thing that he was told would actually take place. It's a sight better than the response of Sarah, Abraham's wife in the Old Testament, who laughed at the news that she would have a child and then immediately denied it to the angel. Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. I always found that exchange somewhat comical. So Mary is not to be worshipped or venerated, but she ought to be held in high esteem as we would any other uh, hero of the faith that we see throughout Scripture that we can look to for their example. She was highly favored by God, and she responded to these supernatural events with great faith and submission to God's will. To say that she had a shock would be an understatement. She's just been visited by an angel. She's just been told out of the blue that she's going to have a baby, which I expect would be a shock for just about any woman to hear all of a sudden, unexpectedly, that you're going to have a baby. Moreover, she's going to have a baby even though she's not yet consummated her marriage with with Joseph. That's more surprising still. And it's a boy. And his name is going to be Jesus. But then a greater shock, Gabriel reveals the true identity of this child that she is to carry. Having spent time with Gabriel and with Mary, let's look ahead to the one whom Gabriel was sent to foretell, that is, the Messiah. Let's look now to the Messiah, verses 30 to 33. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Well, as is always the case, the angel needs to reassure the person that they are sent to, to not be afraid. This is exactly what Gabriel said to Zechariah in Luke 1.13. It was what the shepherds uh, hear from the angel when they are keeping watch over their flock by night in Luke 2.10. It's what angels always say to those they appear to. And it's no wonder to encounter a heavenly being is too much for us to take in as we're confronted just how far we fall short of God's holy perfection by looking at those who have been in his presence. This isn't even just for angels. You recall when Moses came down, he had to veil his face because those who looked upon him could not handle seeing someone whose face was shining because they had been in the presence of Almighty God. So people respond in fear when they encounter an angel. So Gabriel seeks to ease Mary's fear by explaining once again that she has found favor or grace with God. And what form will this favor of God take? And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name 
Jesus. No doubt you immediately recognize the language here as an echo of the words of Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. But for a couple of words, this is verbatim what Isaiah wrote so many years prior. Now a girl of, of good Jewish upbringing would hear that same echo and it, it would not have been lost on her that this 700-year-old prophecy was not only going to come to pass, but that it was going to involve her. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. How many times had she perhaps heard that read and taught in her young life? But not just any virgin, you Mary, you will conceive and bear a son. And so we speak of the, the virgin birth, but Christ's birth was as natural as any other birth. It is the conception that is the miracle. Her conceiving is miraculous. Mary, a virgin, would conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now here we have a variation between the prophecy of Isaiah and the words of Gabriel. It's just a distinction. This is merely another title and a name applied to Jesus Christ. Jesus is essentially the same name as Joshua. Broken down, it is Yah, an abbreviation for Yahweh, and Yasha, which means salvation. So, so Yeshua or Joshua or Jesus it all means God is salvation or God saves. In Matthew's recounting of the angel of the Lord appearing to Joseph in a dream, we read, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the name Jesus speaks to what he will accomplish. He will save his people from their sins. Now at this point, Mary is blissfully ignorant of the cost at which this redemption will come. The crucifixion of the child she is to bear, but for now, she only receives the joyous news. Now in Isaiah, the child is to be called Emmanuel. Rather than speaking what he will accomplish, this speaks to who he is. This is not an indication that God changed his mind about what the baby's name ought to be. So we might go back and forth between baby names before we have a child. Emmanuel, as you no doubt remember, means God with us. And this is exactly what is about to take place. God the Son was to take on flesh and live among them. In Jesus, we have God with us. Well, having revealed the name, Gabriel goes on to provide fuller detail about who he would be. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. He will be great. There has never been, nor will there ever be, another to rival the greatness of Jesus Christ. While he was truly God, he was also truly man. And he stands apart as the greatest man to ever walk the face of the earth. Even those whom we count as great in our eyes pale in comparison. 
They are the same degree below Christ in his greatness as a lighted match is below the greatness of the sun. Now, in some rare cases, even the greatest of men by man's standards recognize that there is one far greater than themselves. While sitting in exile on the island of Elba, Napoleon Bonaparte, that great military tactician, general, and at least at one time and once again emperor of France, was asked by his general, General Bertrand, how a great man like you, that is Napoleon, how a great man like you can believe that the supreme being ever exhibited himself to men under a human form, with a body, a face, mouth, and eyes. Well, to this theological rebuke, Napoleon answered this way, superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires and the gods of other religions. That resemblance does not exist. There is between Christianity and other religions the distance of infinity. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon sheer force. Jesus Christ alone founded his empire upon love, and at this hour millions will die for him. In every other existence but that of Christ, how many imperfections. From the first day to the last, he is the same, majestic and simple, infinitely firm and infinitely gentle. He proposes to our faith a series of mysteries and commands with authority that we should believe them, giving no reason other than those tremendous words, I am God. Between him and whoever else in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. So says the great Napoleon. This child was not merely to be called great, nor was he simply to be seen as great in the eyes of God, as Elizabeth was told to expect of her son John. No, in Jesus Christ, we have greatness itself, the greatest to ever live. He will be great. He will be called Son of the Most High. The Most High, of course, refers to God himself. Over 50 times in Scripture, this title is used either as a description of God or as an, in place of the name of God. Gabriel reveals that Mary's child is to be Son of the Most High. Jesus is the Son of God. This truth is proclaimed by the angel Gabriel to Mary. It is sung out by the psalmist. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. It is acknowledged by the demons. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? It is claimed by Jesus, all things have been handed over to me by my father. And no one knows the son except the father. And no one knows the father except the son. And anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. It is announced by God the Father, and behold, a voice came out of the heavens, saying, This is my beloved Son, in who I am well pleased. And it is proclaimed by the evangelist, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And miracle of miracles, he became the Son of Mary a young Jewish girl betrothed to a carpenter in Nazareth of Galilee. 
Yet the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. The Lord will give Jesus the throne of his father, David. Jesus, born a child and yet a king, we sung a few moments ago. This does not speak to some eventual office that Jesus would ascend to. It describes who he is. Jesus has God as his father, and, and Joseph is the husband of Mary. So why is he said to have David as his father? Well, this is not uncommon to point to a key figure in the genealogy as your father. Just as Jews would refer to themselves as, as or would refer rather to Father Abraham. Matthew began his gospel with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The gospel writer saw how important it was immediately to establish the lineage of Jesus. Christ being the son of David, this is not merely a statement about genealogy. This is a messianic title. The anointed one who would redeem his people would come as a king in the line of David to rule and to reign. Jeremiah 33, 14 to 15, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. There are many passages of the Old Testament that speak to a, a new and better David that comes to sit on that throne forever. Acts 15 summarizes the prophetic witness by saying, and with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. Son of David speaks to who Christ is and what he came to accomplish. This is not known only to the prophets. This is not only known to us, believers and followers of Jesus Christ, as we look back with hindsight on the pages of Scripture. Jesus was identified as the son of David in his own lifetime. Matthew 12, 22-23, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? You see, you can hear the anticipation. They knew to be on the lookout for this son of David. And they wonder, could this be it? Matthew 20, 30, behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Then, of course, in the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Matthew 21, 19, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus was recognized as the son of David. And so it is that Christ is David's son and David's Lord. As Jesus himself declares in the book of Revelation, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root 
and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. He is both the root of David and the branch of David. He is both the, the creator of David and the descendant of David. This can only be said of Jesus Christ who existed in eternity past and came and took on flesh and dwelt among us. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. As he occupies the throne of David, Jesus rules and reigns over the house of Jacob, which is just another way of saying that he rules over God's people, Israel, Jacob being the patriarch of that nation. But we know from the New Testament how the people of God is not limited to those of Jewish heritage, but that the Gentiles will be grafted in and that he is gathering to himself a people of every tribe, nation, and tongue. This too is in fulfillment of what had been foretold of the coming Messiah. From Daniel we read, dominion and glory and kingship were conferred upon him so that all peoples and nations of every language would become his servants. The reign of Christ continues into eternity. His dominion, we read, is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is no earthly king. This is the messianic king. In Isaiah 9, so familiar to us at this time of year, we read, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Jeremiah 33, for thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel Clearly, Jesus was not destined to merely be some earthly king. Rather, Christ already was king over all. And he will continue to reign for all eternity. The coming of Christ our king is in fulfillment to the many prophecies prophecies and promises made to David and the prophets throughout the Old Testament that of his kingdom, there would be no end. He would never lack a man sitting on the throne of David. This is fulfilled ultimately and only in Jesus Christ. That only makes it all the more remarkable that he would humble himself to take on human flesh and dwell among us. As amazing as All of this would have been to Mary and and to Joseph once he was let in on the news. It should be all the more amazing to us. For we know the rest of the story and, and we have the benefit of the entirety of the New Testament to reveal all that Christ said and did and yet will do. There are some things that that Mary did indeed know. She knew that her child was to be conceived miraculously. 
that he would be the son of the Most High, that, that he would be her child and yet her king, and that he would rule and reign forever, all true, all glorious, all too great to fully grasp. But there are many things that she did not yet know and could not yet know. There is much more to the person of Jesus Christ than this. Looking at the whole of New Testament, we know that he would live a perfectly sinless life. That though tempted in all ways like we are, he never failed to obey God's commands. We know that despite his sinlessness, Jesus Christ would meet the death of a criminal, crucified at the hands of the Romans and the religious authorities. Yet his life was not taken from him. He laid it down of his own accord. By his death, the wrath of God against sin was fully and forever satisfied. This is the nature and means by which he would save his people from their sins. What once was but a, a shadow and a precursor is made known. He sacrificed his life in order to pay a debt we could never pay by our works. And as our sin was transferred to him, his perfect righteousness and obedience is transferred to us. And this great exchange is made available to all who by faith trust in him alone for salvation. All this was accomplished, and yet there is more to the greatness of Christ. For he not only laid down his life, he took it up again, rising from the grave three days later to declare his victory over sin and death. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he is coming soon. We celebrate this and more at Christmas. We approach this season not merely with sentimental reflection on the birth of a baby, but with grateful anticipation for the coming of a Savior. And here in this passage, we see the confirmation of God's faithfulness to his word. Every promise of God is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And we see that as Jesus fulfills all of these prophecies foretold hundreds of years before his birth. All of these things that came to pass when a young woman in an obscure town conceived and bore a son and named him Jesus. In the birth of Jesus, we have the culmination of all the promises and prophecies of God. And so in him, we have the hope and the assurance of all the promises of God yet to come. When we look back on the faithfulness of God to his word, we can with hope hold tightly to the promises that he has made us that we have yet to see come to fulfillment. Every promise that we find in scripture for, for the security of our salvation, for the return of Christ, for him to make all things new, for him to put away sin, for him to glorify us and make us as he is. We can trust all of those things for time and time again. We see that God is faithful to his word and we see that here in the birth of Jesus Christ, the son of David. So let us give thanks to God for loving the world so much that he would give his only son to redeem us from our 
fallenness. Let us give thanks to the coming of the Messiah as we mark his birth in the coming days. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you for seeing fit not only to reveal these things by angelic messenger to Mary prior to them coming to pass, but you saw fit to strengthen our faith, to further our understanding, to enrich our understanding of doctrine by revealing them to us in your word. These things, these conversations, these events that we could not possibly have any knowledge of apart from your special revelation in Scripture, Lord. We thank you for passing them down to us that we might have further insight into your greatness and your glory, that we might further, further appreciate all that Jesus Christ is, all that he said, all that he did, all that he accomplished on our behalf. We pray that we would keep these things at the forefront of our hearts and our minds as we continue to approach the day in which we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. Help us do so that we are celebrating not that event only, but all that took place before and after that event. All the promises, the prophecies that foretold that this would take place. How those were confirmed in the event itself. And all that Jesus would go on to do in saving his people from their sins. We celebrate the birth of Emmanuel, God with us. The birth of Jesus. That God would save us from our sins in him. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.